sat and you waving at me in the front seat. All I can see was a hand. <laughs> you can't see in those.
morning, everybody. Good morning. It is good to see you. It's good to be in the house of the Lord. Just some announcements. <clears throat> we have a couple of birthday people today. Happy birthday, Brooks. Paris, you. Happy birthday, Jerry, on vacation in Florida. Everybody turn around and wave Jerry. We have a little video here. And you'll notice that there is an error in the moment. Three eighteen for Pastor Wayne. Even though he wishes he was eighteen again, it's tomorrow. Three eight. He turns seventy five. Right? That's less than that. I feel like. Tonight we have Zoom is resuming. I didn't mean that that way. Um, it's six o'clock. It's just natural. I can straighten my foot in my mouth and make that punch. It's a gift. What can I say? Um, this Wednesday for prayer meeting and Bible study, we're going to continue our question and answer time, where we had a good time uh, going into head coverings, and we have some other questions. If you and I'll send, I'll send it out in the regular prayer request email as a reminder. But if you have questions that you'd like to uh, ask the elders, you can email them to me ahead of time so we're not caught off guard. Or you can ask them if there's time. You have a better chance of having it in the rotation if you email it to me rather than ask it on the fly. And we will have Children's Church this morning, Lord willing. Our leader is running a little bit late, but I expect that she'll be here. And the offering box we've moved, it's on the back table in the foyer, so you can avail yourselves of that. Thank you, Andy. And yeah, Andy, want to continue on that for that Wednesday? We had a good time in discussion on the issues and answers, and we're going to try to do that first Wednesday of each month, but I took up too much time last time, and Andy didn't get a word in dead part, so he edged me out with this Wednesday, looking forward to it, and we dealing with the concept of forgiveness. In any case, if you have your worship folder with you on the inside cover, I put 1 Corinthians 11, 17 through 34 on there for you to look at, and you can... Do so during this time in, in preparation for communion, which we're going to receive in just a bit. This is one of the more lengthy explanations, all writing to the church of Corinth and uh, really dealing with some problems that they had in receiving the ordinance that Christ had installed the night before uh, he died. He turned the elements that they would have during the Passover feast to mark his blood and his body. And so hence you have the bread and the cup that we take. And here Paul explains, of course, why Christ installed that, and that is simply, notice the second paragraph here, this begins in, in verse 23, he does this to, it is for you, for remembrance of him. For us to take time to think about the body and blood of Jesus Christ, and in doing so, as 
gathered church, we proclaim the Lord's death. Notice here, until he comes. Yeah. Who can receive it? Well, those that are in Christ. If you have repented and believed on Jesus Christ, if you're in, in obedience to him, then come and receive. You don't have to actually be a member of this fellowship. You do need to be a member of the body of Christ. And in good standing, if you notice this third paragraph down here, it talks about uh, eating in an unworthy manner, verse 27. So this is more than just a symbolic event. This is truly communion with Christ. And the call is to communion, but to do so in a worthy manner. And that, how would that be? Well, that you're truly in Christ, that you have repented and believed on Him. Otherwise, just observe and see what the body of Christ is doing. Also, this it says, let him examine himself. That is, examine your own heart. If you have unconfessed sin, well, now would be a time to confess it. And He is faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. You don't have to say any particular mantra or do any particular act. It is simply from the heart confessing. Well, then let him eat, notice here. So that's the point, is not to exclude, but to include. And so we call everyone to commune with Christ. I'll take, I'll take a moment now to allow you to examine yourself, to prepare your heart so that we will then sing together in worship, and then I'll call you up to uh, receive both elements, turn back to your seat, and as it states here, we will wait for everyone to be served, and then I'll direct us to receive those elements at that time. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. You first, privately where you're at, take them a few minutes to prepare your heart to worship Christ today, and then I'll pray for us corporately. Let's go to the Lord. Father, we have gathered together as your people, confessing Jesus Christ the Lord. What a great privilege it is to indeed to, to gather together with the saints, to look forward to that true fellowship with you in eternity in the absolute glory of your presence. I pray on this side of eternity that we would certainly get a glimpse of glory, a glimpse that is found in Jesus Christ our Lord. May we take this time to truly examine our heart and then recognize that there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. So we can lift our hearts in great praise to you. I pray, Father, as we fellowship together in song, in 
reading of your word, in prayer, in the explanation of your word, and truly this time of holy communion with Christ, that all of these elements would work together to cause us to truly remember. May that remembrance be that which stays with us in dark days, in days of disappointment, but also even in times of great delight. May we know that all good gifts come through your hand. And so, to your name we exalt and we praise you. May you be exalted in this day. May your people truly grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord. I pray this in Christ's name. Good morning, let's stand and take our hymns and let's turn to number 304 and say, Crown him with many crowns, and on his head with many crowns. Christ and his body. The cup 
is his blood. Bread, his body, pictures more than anything. He does picture everything, but I focus on the righteousness of Christ that has been merited in his life. God incarnate, human flesh, walked among us and fulfilled all righteousness. Something that no one else has ever done or ever will do. No wonder it is only through Christ that you will stand in perfect righteousness before God. In Christ, wearing His righteousness, you can stand in absolute perfection. What will absolve you for those imperfections of your life, we call them sin, what will truly atone for that? God did something unique in taking that sin, all sin that you have committed, that you will commit, put them on Jesus Christ's body. We call this imputed. Imputed righteousness to us and imputed unrighteousness to Christ. No sin in his body, no guile in his mouth, yet he died. He didn't sin, but he took on sin. You didn't live in perfection, but you took on perfection in Christ. See how both of them were? What, a, what an absolutely glorious and beautiful way of salvation, actually, the only way it could possibly be done. So today, we gather together as a church to be reminded once again of this most familiar but significant truth to which we must be reminded on a regular basis. Blake, I'll ask you to go ahead and bless these two elements for us, and then I'll invite you to receive Dear Father, Lord, we thank you for this time that we can think about, remember, and commemorate, Lord, the, your body that was broken for us, Lord, and the blood that spilt and shed on our behalf, Lord, uh, the only way for our mission is sins, Lord, we yes. uh, ask you to bless this time as we take this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And I'd like to start from this far side, if you'll stand and see both elements when they're done, then in the middle you just return back where you're at. Go ahead and receive them out now.
made holy, that is a saint, because of Christ, his righteousness. But holy nonetheless, beloved in Christ. Receive this in remembrance of him. What a joy to stand before you as a saint of God, not because of my accomplishments, but because of Christ. But also, I don't have to stand before you as an unrighteous sinner, because Christ has paid for every one of my sins. He has paid it all. There is nothing else that can wash away your sin other than the very blood of Jesus Christ who does that. And because of that, beloved, I don't care what you might have done. If you're in Christ, there is no guilt. He is born at all. He would be diminishing his work for you to bear the guilt that Christ bore on his body on that tree. So in great joy, receive no condemnation. Traditionally, they sing and leave. You want to sing and spit. So let's stand together. When I think we have three back-to-back, with this in mind, let's sing out joyfully as a church gather together to praise and worship now for Jesus Christ. So, 163, wonderful grace and peace. And then we have redemption through the blood according to the riches of His grace.
turn with me to Psalm 40, page 468 in our Q Bible. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. The Lord has no pleasure in the strength of the horse. The Lord has no pleasure in the legs of the strong man. The Lord has no pleasure in the strength of Mr. Olympia. The Lord has no pleasure in the wealth of a centibillionaire. That's somebody who has over $100 billion. The Lord has no pleasure in the high IQ of the genius. But the Lord delights in those who fear his name. Amen. The Lord delights in those who trust in His steadfast love. Amen. Let's read about the Lord in Psalm 40. To the choir master, a psalm of David. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Yahweh, my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written with me. I delight to do your will, O oh my God. Your law is within my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me, and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, Aha! Aha! But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy. But the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, oh my God. Father, thank you for pulling us out of the mire of all of our sin. 
please guard our hearts from the fear of man and our own mortality. May we fear you and you alone. Thank you for showering us with grace upon grace and bringing us new mercies every morning. Thank you for providing for our spiritual and physical needs. Please use the gifts that are given today to accomplish your will for your glory. Please cause our souls to hope in you. Yes. Oh Lord, do not delay. It's in the powerful name of Jesus Christ that I pray. Amen. Amen.
tell people about Christ, it's like they'll come up with it, their own image of who he might be or what they think he would be or what God would be about. But that image is wrong because they don't know him. And they don't see him. That's the world. That's the sinners. But to the saints, you know him, verse 17 of chapter 14, Roman, you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. God was dwelling with them in Christ incarnate and the Holy Spirit still then among them, but there would be a unique way in which the Holy Spirit would be sent to work in the world and with those that are in Christ, he will actually dwell with you. God with us, Emmanuel. Verse 18 says, that I won't leave you as orphans. I'll come to you. He doesn't leave us as orphans and is just coming in his second coming, but beyond that, he leaves the Holy Spirit, sends the Holy Spirit to stay with you and dwell with you so that you're not alone. And this girl saying, Hope in God. He's with you. Always. Don't despair. Regardless of what goes on. Jesus says he sends the Holy Spirit. Now this is mysterious to some degree. Difficult, perhaps, to understand. But that is due to our limitations. Scripture is clear of who the Spirit is. Hence, we understand then this doctrine we call the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, three distinct persons, yet all equally and eternally gone. A unique being for which there is nothing else that corresponds. That's why you, you can make up an illustration of this ball short, because there is only one God, and God is Let's read the scriptures to understand who he is. So Christ says, I will continue to be with you. You won't be alone because God will dwell with you. Specifically, the person of the Holy Spirit. Now, Jesus has additional teaching about this Holy Spirit. And as I've mentioned before, from this section from 13 to 17, he kind of goes back, winds back around and brings up additional information from a different perspective and a nuance. And here we have the perspective beginning in verse 4 of his work, that is the Holy Spirit's work, in the world with sinners. So let's go ahead and read the text, and I'll just read it in its fuller context, go to verse 15, so that we'll have that this morning. This is Jesus to his disciples, verse 4. He says, I've said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I didn't say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. Here's going to be a change that's coming. But, verse 5, now I'm going to him who sent me. And none of you asked me, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper, 
will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Concerning sin, because they don't believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth. For He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify Me. For He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is Mine. Therefore I said, He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. Let us pray. Father, I pray that indeed the Holy Spirit, dwelling among us, will enlighten us and enable us to understand the significance of your truth. May we receive it as food to our souls and fuel to our Christian life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Structurally, this morning, just to look at this text, as I mentioned, <coughs> 4 through 11, speaks of the Spirit's work with the sinners. 12 to 15, the saints. And we'll look at the first aspect, the work of the Spirit towards sinners this morning. Jesus introduces the work of the Holy Spirit here, reminding him first that he's leaving. Jesus is, is going. He didn't tell them this, this detail before because he was with them, but now, verse 5, he says, I'm going to him and sent me, who that they fall. He's ascending on high. He's going to return in the fullness of his glory. His glory was veiled in flesh, walked among us in that sense. It will be the fullness of the glory in the presence of the Father ruling in authority. But none of the text here, it says, but none of you asked me where you're going. Well, again, you have to understand the context in which it's said here. Yeah, they've asked him those kinds of questions, but, but here he's focusing on this idea that he's just said, I'm going away, and then rather than focus on that, what is that about? Well, what I just said. A restoration of the fullness of his glory. The, the unrevealing, if you will, the revelation of the glory of Christ. Sorrow instead fills their heart because he's, he's going away. They're not concerned so much about Christ, the ascension. They're worried about the experiences that they're going to lose. They, it's a very self-centered approach, if you will. They're going to lose this experience, if you will. This should be a time of great rejoicing because the glory of Christ will be in full display once again. He'll be seated at the right hand of authority. This is a very short time 
we measure things in minutes and hours and days and it seems like it goes on and on until you have another birthday and you realize, who's that old man in the mirror? <laughs> it's really not all that long. Time flies. Kids are in the cradle and now they're in a car. Time's really short compared to eternity, compared to the time in the few, just a few more minutes, can you imagine? Every single time, every created creature will confess this one, Jesus Christ, is Lord to the Lord of the Father. That's going to be the glorious moment in time to which we are invited in Christ to confess Him as Lord in the justification that He has brought for us. Others will do so in great judgment. And justice will be served. The God of all earth, He will do what's right. And it's only just a short time people get away, whatever they're getting away from, because they're not. The glory of Christ here being Revealed in its fullness as he ascends on high should be great joy for them, but sorrow fills the heart. It should be redoubled great joy for us, but sometimes sorrow fills our heart too. Jesus then in our text reminds them, hey, listen. I know perhaps from a human perspective, that you're sad because you won't see me in that sense. But the state of being after Christ ascends on high, not only is his glory revealed, but notice here in verse 7 in our text, it says, it's actually to your advantage. It's to your advantage that I go away. Now, I can understand their circumstance. Here they are with God incarnate in flesh, and somehow that seems better in their mind. Wouldn't it yours if Jesus were here this morning? But it's better. And that's what he says. It's actually to your advantage. Why is it better? Well, if I don't go away, then this advocate, this helper, this another of the, you understand this, God incarnate, God now in spirit indwelling the life of each believer. If, if Christ isn't glorified, then the spirit who works in this unique way will not come. So we're actually living in a better time. A greater advantage. Why? Because the spirit then has some unique and effective work that he will do on a worldwide basis to the entire world. And that's his first section here when he comes, verse 8. Notice what he's going to do. Three categories, and each one is explained. So this sermon is really kind of easy to do. Jesus helped us out with this. Sin, righteousness, and judgment. This is the threefold work of the Holy Spirit to the world, to sinners. This is intensified. Jesus did all these things. He 
convicted the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. But in a sense, there's a physical restriction to God incarnate in flesh. Here, the Holy Spirit will do this universally, worldwide. And beyond that, he will dwell specifically with each believer that they would in also take this spirit with them wherever they go in ministry to the world and effectively cause this conviction of sin, righteousness, and judgment as they proclaim the gospel. Note here the word he will convict. I think it's helpful to stop and make sure we understand what that means. He's going to convict the world. We'll explain sin, righteousness, and judgment. It's somewhat obvious, but we'll look at that a little deeper in a second. But he's going to do this threefold work specifically, and it is a conviction of sin. It is a conviction of righteousness and judgment. The word, Lencho, if you were to look this up in the original language, the primary usage of it is to reprove, if you will, to expose. Convict is a good English word. One lexicon reports that in every instance the verb has to do with showing someone his sin, usually as a summons to repentance. It's often translated, the word itself, as rebuke. Remember in Matthew 18, where it talks about church discipline and what you should do when someone has an issue, you run to the elders and tell them. No, you don't. You go to that individual and tell him that there's sin. Tell him his fault. That's the idea of con conviction here. You expose, you explain it to them. Paul would tell us in Ephesians, to don't take part in the unfruitful works of unrighteousness, but rather rebuke them, expose them. Timothy, Paul tells his protege there, for those that are in your congregation persisting in sin, rebuke them. Same idea, same word for convict here. Titus, he says the same thing. He says a pastor needs to be able to rebuke, that's the word, convict, those who contradict the faith. And to do so with all authority. That is, authority of Christ's word. Rebuke here is, is given. It, it is an attempt to be mean-spirited towards people. This rebuke is meant to be helpful, painful as it might be, like a surgeon's knife to cut off gangrene off of dying flesh because it will kill you. Painful, but purposeful. I'm afraid sometimes we get away and soften the gospel quite a bit that we forget this concept of conviction or rebuke, if you want. But that is the Holy Spirit's work. He does work through the means of his saints to accomplish it, but nevertheless, this is what he is about. Rebuking sin. Rebuking 
those who fail to live up to righteous standard of Christ and indeed of then judgment. Let's look at each one. Spirit uniquely working here. Verse 9, it explains this first one. Notice the phrase, rebukes concerning sin because they don't believe in me. Sin here, the word armatia, you may have heard of it before. It's a feeling of um, transgression, of ignoring what is required by God's law, whether in feeling, speech, or action. This word harmatia meant uh, classically to, to miss the mark, if you will. So you can almost imagine this imagery, perhaps you've heard it before. You have a target out here, and somebody with a bow and arrow pulls this back and is aiming at this target, but he totally misses it. Doesn't get the bullseye, doesn't get the rings around it. He completely misses. It, it falls short, often, is how it's expressed in Scripture. Falling short of what? The glory of God. What would the glory of God be? The perfection, the target, the bullseye. The position that God always maintains. In our catechisms, we teach the kids what, what is sin. Their answer might be in any want or, of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. The Apostle John would say in 1 John 3, 4 that practice of sin is lawlessness because sin is lawless. Here you have God's law, the target, miss it, it's sin. The law in and of itself isn't a set of rules that are arbitrarily established, you understand. The law is holy, just, and good. Because the law is not in and of itself a standard. It is merely a reflection of the standard. What is the standard? It's God himself. You see, God is holy. He is absolutely perfect. That's what holy means. It means a cut above the rest. There is, there is no greater standard than God. So God is perfect in all of his attributes. So anything he would do is just, it is perfect, it's always on the mark. It would always be good, it would always be right. The psalmist said in 119.137, Righteous are you, O Lord, and right are your rules. Right? This rule's right, because it's a reflection of who he is. God, God is not under that standard. God is the standard. We put it in words so that we can try to understand that holy perfection of who God actually is. Sin is simply missing that. And then the response then of recognizing that you're missing the mark would be to do what? To repent. To turn to turn towards that which is holy, just, and good. So then the proclamation then of God's 
word reveals sin and causes people to turn from their sin or missing the mark and towards the standard which is indeed God. I was listening to a message the other day, kind of unfortunately, but I did want to hear what the guy had said. Did we was. He's trying to make some sort of argument that we don't really need to call people to repentance and point out their sin. We just need to love them. You love one, well then they might stop doing what they're doing. And go towards the mark. First glance, that might seem good. People who have written books like Love Wins don't recommend you read it. Post-modern evangelicals coming up with this idea as well. Let's just show them love and they will respond. In fact, this one uh, preacher... I, well, he actually was an academician, really, what a preacher did, as he mentioned, that isn't it the kindness of God's love that leads you to repentance? One notable thing, by the way, in his sermon, lecture, devotional, whatever it was, he actually failed to pull out the text and go through the text. He just grabbed a few little pretexts and put those out, including his whole illustration for this, which was found in the life of, of, of his argument in the life of Zacchaeus. Didn't even read the story, but people were familiar with it, and so he just went on and said, well, you know, Zacchaeus, finding Luke 19, by the way, he came and <clears throat> religious people were kind of upset at him, everybody was upset at him, he up in the street, and Christ was really happy with him and loving with him, and he went to his house to go eat, eat lunch with him. And that's how we are. Of course, in the text, it doesn't really talk about what Christ did other than demand him to come down and follow him. <laughs> and Christ told him he was Lord and he was going to go to his house. You know what the results were in it and the fact that uh, he, Zacchaeus, what he did, if you know from reading the text, he repented. He stopped doing what he was doing. He repented and the the emphasis of that passage is that Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. Verse 10. Christ preached repentance. The kindness of God is that lecture was talking about that leads us to repentance found in Romans chapter 2. Speaks of God's kindness in the sense of his forbearance and patience. That's what it is. You know what God's kindness is right now? That he doesn't destroy this place. You know what God's kindness is? He doesn't drown us all like rats. Like in the days of Noah. Even though many in our culture have abused the very powerful sign that he has established every time 
there's some moisture in the air and the light reflects, reflects through it in a certain way. You've seen the, the bug? God put it there to remind us one thing of judgment to come. And he is forbearing it right now and holding it back even though many in our culture would absolutely prefer that beautiful symbol. A bow, by the way, is a bow with bow and arrow. You get it? That's what it is. It's a weapon of war. That's what's sitting up there. God holds that up there as a reminder that judgment is coming and it won't be water. He promised that it wouldn't be. But it will be fine. And all the elements will burn with heat. In fact, in this text in Romans 2, and I'll just read it for you, he says about God's kindness, what you should do about it is don't take it for granted. But because, verse, two, verse 5 of Romans 2, because of your impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render every man according to his works, which, by the way, you know where my works are that he's going to render? Remember the communion bread? That's my works. Christ's works. Perfection. If you're not in Christ, you're going to get what you deserve. Certain justice and judgment. There are those, he would say in verse 8, who are self-seeking and don't obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness. There will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil to the Jew first and also to the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good to the Jew first and the Greek. For God doesn't show partiality. Of course he does. God. Back to our text here in John 16. In verse 9. The Holy Spirit will come then and convict concerning sin, missing the mark, if you will, of God's glory. But notice how it's phrased here, though. We know what sin is, but look how it's phrased here specifically. Because they don't believe in me, verse 9. They don't believe in Jesus Christ. Can I tell you this? As I thought about it, maybe you can think about it. Take this out later and think about it. At the root, at the core of all sin is unbelief. And specifically, it's unbelief in Jesus Christ, who is the fullness of the glory of God explained. It's unbelief. You have anxiety. Do you believe he knows all? Has a purpose for all? Keeps all? Do you believe in Christ? Infidelity or sexual sin? Do you believe his promises? The beauty that in which he has created? Marriage, a place for that 
to be undefiled and to be beautiful and to glorify God. Drunkenness, isn't it? Just unbelief in Christ. That you would try to push out from your mind the reality or whatever purposes that causes that greed. Isn't it really unbelief that you don't believe in the riches that are in Christ Jesus and the promises that He might give? Whatever you might be struggling with, beloved, by the way, some people call it habitual sins or maybe a particular sin that bothers you more than anything else. Maybe it's anger, lust, whatever it might be. Why don't you try this? Look to Christ. Maybe the focus should be on Him. Believing in Him. Not only what He said about it, but what He promises you with no guilt. Focus on Him. Sin ultimately, I'd argue, is an unbelief in the very promises of God in the person of Jesus Christ. Come to know Him. It will help you in your sanctification. It will bring you closer to the target that you're seeking. Back to our text in verse 10, the second one. It is the Holy Spirit that is going to rebuke, convince the world concerning sin, and secondarily here, concerning righteousness, verse 10, and Christ says, because I go to my Father, you'll see me no longer. We'll pick that aspect up in a second. I just want to focus on the word righteousness itself. Dikiosune in, in Greek. It includes the idea of justice and an adherence to a particular moral standard of righteousness. Christ says he's going to the Father. You'll see me no longer. What's the standard of righteousness? It's the person of Jesus Christ. The moral standard is Jesus Christ. The prophets of old, Jeremiah 23, 5, for example, exclaim, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll raise up for David a righteous branch. And he shall reign as a king and deal wisely and execute justice and righteousness in the land. This is a messianic promise of who this person is. It is Jesus Christ. But now he's going, he says. He is the standard. All other leaders fall short. If remember, we opened up in the book of John as it begins in the following the prologue. Speaking of Christ, God incarnate, verse 14 of chapter 1, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The glory is, again, his, the beauty of His divine attributes. And as John tries to explain it, he said, well, we've seen His glory. It's the glory of God. And how would you explain it? Grace and truth. He demonstrated that in His ministry, in His life, every day, every thought, 
every attitude, every action. Now you see why you can't compare. This is the righteous one who is indeed the standard and who does so in flesh. In fact, even of his enemies, Elikos in 8.46 of our gospel in John, he's, he asked the crowd, which one of you convicts me of sin? Then he asked them, since none of them could say anything, well then why didn't you believe in me? So that's the ultimate aspect of sin, unbelief in Christ. No one could find fault when he stood, which we'll see soon in chapter 19 before Pilate. <clears throat> he comes out once again. He's nervous about this whole thing because he could find no guilt in him. None. Not even a little bit. He is our righteous one. John would describe in 1 John chapter 2. Our righteous one. Our advocate with the Father. The very righteous. What's this connection then with the Holy Spirit? Jesus is, is going. Jesus is the righteous one. He's returning to the Father. The advocacy will now be through the Holy Spirit, and that is why it's better, because this advocacy will dwell in all saints and be distributed universally, worldwide. This ministry of the Holy Spirit, it is a ministry of righteousness to those that are then from the world, unrighteous, regenerated, and now enabling and empowering, if you will, saints then to demonstrate the righteousness of Christ in the various works of the Spirit. Peter would say, if you're going to serve God, do so in the strength which the Spirit provides. 1 Peter 4, 11. We're familiar with what we often call the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And then, you know, remember that phrase there? This is Galatians 5, 22. Against such there is no law. See that connect? Because that is fulfilling that which is righteous. There's no... It isn't missing the mark. It is the mark. The mark is... Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. But these, beloved, aren't going to be manifested in your life apart from the Spirit. Hence, it's called the fruit of the Spirit. And not fruits, plural. It's just the working of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. In their righteous actions, anything that is attributable to, to good and to that which is right, to that which is hitting the mark, is a product of the Holy Spirit. Now you can see why it's better that you might be indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and beyond that, that that would occur in the life of the believer, and then if you remember, Paul calls the church then to be filled with this Holy Spirit. What do you mean? You already, have, you already indwelt with the Holy Spirit. How would you be filled with the Holy Spirit? Ephesians 5.18. Speaking of control, submission to that very Holy Spirit. Not submission to that which is debauchery, such as 
drunkenness, and then you can put any other thing that misses the perfect, perfect mark, right, in that category. Don't be controlled by your lusts, your greed, your anxiety, your anger, and the list goes on, right? It's not just drunkenness there. Anything that doesn't conform to the righteousness of Christ, but instead be controlled by this very Holy Spirit. And how will you see evidence of it? It'll put a song in your heart. It's one of the reasons why we try to teach the young people these songs. So they'll have a song in their heart. So they can take these biblical ideas like hoping in God, right, in times of despair. Maybe it would be helpful to be able to sing them out so that you have them but nevertheless, when you do sing them, then it comes back to you and you think on these very things. Music is a, is a, 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 there's a special, unique connection with your very soul and expression. And this is why we do this. It's not for entertainment's sake, although it's enjoyable to some aspect, but this is the way that God has wired us. To be controlled and that you would make then melody with your heart. And yeah, because it's in the heart, it does get expressed in the lips. Different ways with different people. But nevertheless, it's this idea of being controlled by the Holy Spirit. We call it the filling of the Holy Spirit. And it's expressed in giving thanks specifically to God through Jesus Christ. It is only through Christ that we... Uh, we can express thanksgiving to God and then it results in our submission one to another in ways that are appropriate to our various relationships out of reverence for Christ. Ephesians 5, 18-21. I'll just mention one other work of the Holy Spirit and that is that indeed He will enable the believer, to put to death the deeds of the flesh. Find that in Romans 8.13. Spirit has a powerful work to bring out righteousness. And one of it is to slay that which is unrighteous. D.A. Carson comments on this concept. He says, Jesus is going. How will that convicting work be continued. It's continued by, and he calls it the paraclete, that's the Greek word there, who drives home this conviction in the world precisely because Jesus is no longer present to discharge his task. Undoubtedly, this kind of conviction is driven home to the world primarily through Jesus' followers who, empowered by the Holy Spirit, live their lives in such growing conformity to Christ that the same impact on the world is observed as when Jesus himself lived out his life before the world. But you understand, it's greater works than Christ because of the multiplicity of those that are in Christ, indwelt by the Spirit, producing the fruit of the Spirit, controlled by the Spirit, killing the flesh by the Spirit. It's a multiplicity of it. That's my Thus, when Christians obey the new commandment, all men learn that they are Jesus' disciples. 
That's this work of the Spirit is accomplished through the disciples is probably the reason for the shift to the second person in verse 10, where he says, because I'm going to the Father, you can see me no longer, rather than the expected fact. The point is, Jesus was the paradigm, the model, behavior, the master is to be followed. Now the paraclete, speaking of the Holy Spirit, so empowers them, taking from what is mine, and making it known to you, verse 15, that they continue to follow Jesus and thus convict the world of its lack of righteousness, but also to show a righteous standard of what it might look like when someone is filled with the Holy Spirit and does demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit. They will see it in the lives of those who follow Christ, hence our Christ-like. Paul would tell the church at Corinth and other places, imitate me. He explains that as I follow Christ. So they can see that in the world. Finally, let's go to the third aspect here in our text in verse 11. It's concerning judgment. Verse 11. With sin, righteousness, and thirdly, you have judgment. And notice verse 11 is specifically tied to the concept that the ruler of this world is judged. The world system, the devil, has already been judged by the death of Christ. There's no cosmic battle of uncertainty. There's no yin and yang, if you will. There's no dualistic idea of philosophy of good and evil. Sorry, there is only one that is God. He is sovereign over all. And the ruler of the world is already judged. Go put your faith and trust in the world and the world system and you will receive judgment. It's already done. It's finished. Satan in the world system has been judged and is found wanting. It may appear and it will in short order historically where we're at as far as the disciples are concerned that the Satan is winning. In our day, and again, we're just dealing with a little slice in time compared to eternity, it can be very disheartening and it looks like the world is completely falling apart, and particularly in our culture, and I agree. And I'm disappointed in it in many respects. I've mentioned before, and I'm going to mention again because I think these are critical, and for the church to demonstrate a different standard of righteousness, one that is truly righteous and following Christ, particularly in the sanctity of life, in marriage, which was designed by God in the beginning and certainly blessed in Christ and is the norm, and beyond that to multiply and fill the earth, that has not been withdrawn. The children will be brought up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And this insanity now to even just get rid of the whole idea of gender. You have to be educated beyond 
any reasonable insanity to walk down that way. The cultural winds, I would say, are blowing in the direction of insanity. It's already been judged, though. You want to know the end of the story? Christ wins. May look like the battle's been lost. It's not. He wins. He'll reign forever and ever. This world has been judged by the sinless, righteous one who has crushed the head of Satan. Oh yes, it will bruise his heel. As he told us in Genesis 3.15. But Christ has crushed his head. It may appear alive, wiggling around, but its doom is certain. In fact, that is why Jesus, in time, it's been decreed, but then displayed in time in Christ, he has come to, as John would tell us in 1 John 3, 8, destroy the works of the devil. You see him? They're all going to be destroyed, and here it is the Holy Spirit who then would convince or rebuke the world, those who would rebel against Christ. The judgment is that light has come into the world. People love darkness rather than light because why? Their deeds were evil. We've already heard that, John 3, 19. Truth has come. Christ has come. There will be those who continue to rebel against Christ and his disciples. But his disciples will then be indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And who is that Spirit? We've already heard he is the Spirit of truth. And he will guide those that are in Christ in all truth. Jesus has sent the Spirit of truth to continue to rebel those who reject the truth. And I don't have time to get into this at great length, and I, so if I confuse you, you can bring this up on one of our issues and answers on Wednesday sometime in the future. But just a quick thought. The spirit of truth comes, he rebukes those who would reject the truth. Rejecting that spirit is blasphemy against that Holy Spirit and his work. I know specifically when Christ talked about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, he was talking about the Holy Spirit work in his ministry, okay? His miracles, his message, the things that he did and was called to do, his righteous acts and actions. You understand this same Holy Spirit works in the lives of believers to give you a message of truth to tell, to enable you to live a righteous life, to enable you to warn of certain judgment to come. If you will not hear it, through the message of his saints, there is no hope for you. And that is a blasphemy in and of itself, an application I will grant, but nevertheless a blasphemy even in this day of the very work of the Holy Spirit which is going on right now. The work of the Holy Spirit is going now in proclaiming and convincing and rebuking of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Reject Him, there's no hope. 
he'll convict the world. On this side of Christ's ascension, he's already ascended on high, he's told us in verse 7 that we have a great advantage. It's better because of the Holy Spirit. It's because of the Holy Spirit who is then sent to us. We can depend on His work to bring about repentance and faith. I don't hope to accomplish anything. I heard some other lecture, some guys trying to ask somebody, a preacher, about, well, how, why is this book better than these other religious books? Now, you can go down an evidential argument and talk about the historicity of the Scripture, the consistency, all these evidences for it. They won't hear it. They can't hear it. They can't receive it. It's only going to come through the power of the Holy Spirit. And guess what? That's better. Because I'm not all that good at convincing people about stuff. My kids don't believe half the stuff. I How am I going to convince somebody? Did you know who can Holy Spirit. So we just preach Christ and Him crucified. We tell them about their sin. We tell them about the, the, the healing for it. We tell them about the righteous one who is Jesus Christ. And we pray that the Holy Spirit will reveal the glory of who Christ is. And we warn them of judgment to come. But in the end, it is the work of the Spirit who will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And I'm glad He's here. Amen. Aren't you? Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that you have not left us as orphans, but given us an advocate in Jesus Christ. I pray for your people that we would be greatly strengthened to judge sin in our own life, to seek righteousness, and warn others of the wrath to come, that many sons and daughters may praise your holy name and see the beauty of Jesus Christ and believe all the promises that he has granted to us. Yes and amen. Take a moment to think on these things privately. Where you're at, I'll give you a moment.